This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. So today we have something really cool. I got to speak with our own Dr. John Rose, professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, who recently returned from being the physician at Amundsen-Scott Station at the South Pole for the Austral summer of 2018-2019. So this sounds like a pretty intense experience. And John is somewhat of a legend as an emergency physician here at UC Davis. But let's hear a little bit about how he got to do this. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think most of the listeners will understand that emergency physicians, we do a lot of crazy things. We go to you know high mountains. We do a lot of austere medicine. And a lot of groups like to have us for that. And the National Science Foundation, who runs the Amundsen-Scott Station at South Pole, they want emergency physicians to staff their clinics because they know that we are the people that are best kind of served for that. So I heard about this opportunity and as a EMS person and having been to different austere places, I've always wanted to do this. So I had the opportunity um, after applying to be scheduled to be the physician at the South Pole. Um, there's three stations on Antarctica, one at Palmer Station on the peninsula of McMurdo, which is the large station on Ross Island, but the center of the continent at the actual South Pole markers, Amundsen-Scott Station. So I was, I feel really lucky that I was able to get that deployment. So did you need any special training? So I got extra special training because I had to be a dentist. I got comprehensive dental training, which was about four hours. They had a full dental x-rays, a full dental set, as well as my dentist's office has. Even though people were pre-screened for dental Um, I was expected to render that care. Luckily, we had a wonderful dentist on call all the time in Colorado who I could email him because, as we know, there's very few real dental emergencies. I could call him, but I would email him, send him the dental x-rays, photos, my basic non-dental explanation of what I'm finding, and he would uh, help assist me uh, uh, with whatever equipment I needed. Most of the time, it was just re attaching a crown that fell off or a bridge or a filling fell out and having a temporary filling, things that sometimes we can do in the ED. Um, Wasn't too complicated, but that was it. Okay, so you've done your dental training now, and then what happens next? Take us through how the deployment happens. So after, you know, I I knew I was going to be going down for that period, but they don't know when the flights are going to go in. So I flew from San Francisco to Christchurch, New Zealand. Christchurch, New Zealand is where U.S. Polar Operations Deployment is from. And so there's a large center there um, where they have the clothing distribution center where you go to the CDC you go to. And this you you get your ECW, which stands for Extreme Cold Weather Gear, which is everything you can't buy at REI. But you get fitted with that, and then you deploy from there. You're in your hotel. You get a letter under your door. It says your flight leaves. Be at the airport tomorrow at 4.30. They pick you up. Um, You go through this big processing center, and you get onboarded at the center, and then you get on a C-17 aircraft. This is the Air Force handles all the logistics down there at Operation Deep Freeze, as it's termed. And they fly us down from there to McMurdo. And when you land at McMurdo, it's called, that's when you landed on ice, as the term is. That's your ice date. You arrive on ice, and I got at McMurdo. And I was there for about nine days, waiting for pole, the South Pole, it's termed pole there, waiting for the South Pole Station to open to winter flights. And so I worked there, and then I was on the second flight into South Pole, which is on a C-130, which has skis on it. And uh, you fly from McMurdo to South Pole, which is about flying from here to Denver. It's almost 1,000 miles. And then they land there on the ice, 
and you get off and it's uh, minus 70 degrees when you get off and it's all sunny and you realize, wow, it's really cold at minus 70 degrees. That's why they give you this special gear to wear. Amundsen Scott Station, the whole U.S. Antarctic program is the National Science Foundation. It's all civilian. So the Air Force handles the logistics for the aircraft for all the deployments on the continent for the summer. There are a lot of field stations in different places people have to get. Um, but the Air Force, um, I didn't. I hung out with a lot of Air Force people. I didn't realize it's a fairly uh, popular uh, deployment to get when you're on the Air Force. You want to go to Antarctica, so a lot of people have worked a lot of years on their part also to get to Antarctica. So, um, but it is a civilian program completely there through the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation subcontracts the medical care to University of Texas Medical Branch, where they have polar operations in Galveston, Texas. Makes a lot of sense. So UTMB, as it's termed, has a great outfit there that does telehealth around the world. That was where my training was. And that is when I'm deployed, that's who I report to. So my medical director was through UTMB, and that's who I would contact. And if I needed consults from any service, ophthalmology, dermatology, anything like that, they would come through UTMB. They had a consult service. I could either call the consult line or I could go through email. And they would, all my x-rays I would have to upload or anything, they would handle it. And I would get a, a report back from a consultant. Or if I needed an emergency consultant, I could talk to someone on the phone right away. We had Iridium satellite phones at Pole, so I could call directly. So that's amazing that you're so well supported there. But okay, so you land at Pole, and what are you greeted with other than minus 70 degree weather? Tell us about your typical day. There was a winter physician there when I arrived. Um, they'd been there for 10 months in the dark, so they were not quite as well as I was when I arrived on the station. I think I gave myself one day to acclimatize and then took over from that physician. Um, And then your typical day was the clinic was open 7.30 to 5.30, six days a week. All the jobs there were six days a week. We got Sundays off. Uh, Though in medical, I was, it was myself and a nurse practitioner. I was on call 24 hours a day for the four months um, because we had no real other call system. And so we would see people in the clinic who would, some people just have regular occupational medicine injuries or illnesses you know, cough, someone would get a urinary tract infection or something simple. I did have a lot of uh, altitude-related conditions. Uh, so because Pole, um, the South Pole is, albeit almost at 10,000 feet uh, measured, the polar atmosphere is thinner than at the equators because of the centrifugal force of the, of the planet. And so the barometric physiologic pressure that you would feel changed every day. So we would, some days would be 10,200 feet, other days would be 11,500 feet. And as we got higher altitude, we would see more altitude-related illness. And um, as we know in the emergency department, many times patients do, don't do what we ask them to do. And um, in deployment going to poll, we ask people to take acetazolamide. And here's to, to a sequence of things they do when they arrive on station because they're going right from sea level to altitude. We want them to go slow. But many people don't do that. And then they get high-altitude pulmonary edema. So I had four medevacs uh, for high-altitude pulmonary edema in young people who thought they were too fit and healthy to get pulmonary edema, and they did. And these people typically have pulse ox readings of 30 to 40% and heart rates of 140, and they think they're just having a hard time acclimatizing. But, um, so they get a pretty white-out chest X-ray with a lot of water, but we can get them, quit, get them better and hopefully get a flight within a day or two to get them down if we're lucky. The cases I had were classic. Um, usually it's within about the third day that people notice the acute mountain sickness with a headache and all that, that's usually within the first day or so. But by the third day, um, it's usually because people went to the gym right away on station. They didn't let their body acclimatize. They just started going hard at the gym. 
Um, that would be the most common reason. And they noticed they got a little short of breath at work and they had to go home early. Then typically that the night before they come in, they usually can't sleep. They notice that they're having to sit up because they're, they can't sleep very well. And they come in in the morning because they realize they couldn't go to work. And they wondered if you can help them out and give them something so that they can breathe better. And uh, so that was typically how all they all presented very much the same way. Yeah. The treatment for hape is merely just oxygen, high-flow oxygen and nifedipine. Um, acetazolamide and decadron are really for the, the cerebral and the mountain sickness side of it. But for the pulmonary parts of uh, uh, altitude, um, that, that's really just oxygen primarily. And then... Uh, PO nifedipine is added to that. And you can use, um, we did have sildenafil, Viagra unstationed to use if the nifedipine wasn't effective, you can use sildenafil. But most of the time, it's just the oxygen made people better. There's a spectrum of altitude illness that really happens. It's not just the acute. So we would see the normal, you know, people with mild and moderate altitude sickness with headache and they're nauseous and we would treat them and get them better. Um, and they would, you know, do well after a week. Um, and like I described the hate cases, we didn't have any haste there because we weren't that high. Um, but then people would be better. They would be acclimatized. They feel like they're back to get going. And then usually about a month after they were there, they would start to feel bad again. They would not sleep well. They'd have hypoxic dreams again, hypoxic, the periodic breathing at night, not sleeping as well. Um, and it's the phenomenon of the development of some mild chronic mountain sickness that would kick in. So we'd put people back on Diamox. I had a little bit of myself. I remember a period of time where I suddenly had a hard time sleeping. And in fact, the number one sleeping aid we would use when people would come in and say, I can't sleep, is they would get a trial of Diamox first before we would do anything else. Because most of the time that fixed it 80% of the time when people said, you know, I can't sleep at night. I'm really restless. I'm waking up. If we put them on low dose Diamox at night for about a week, it would make that go away. Um, we had a few people who get polycythemic. They're, they're uh, their hemoglobins would get up to 21 or so. And that's an overreaction of the marrow to the chronic hypoxia. Uh, usually you'll put about a gram on your hemoglobin over the time that you're up there. But when people would put three grams on, that's a, that's a abnormal response. But again, the treatment for that is you put them back on Diamox for two weeks and it brings it back down to normal. So it's interesting how the, the, the Diamox and regulating our breathing again and getting us back in that solves a lot of this. It was very, very interesting. I was not anticipating that and the feelings. We do sit with, you know, when you're there, your normal pulse ox is 91% or so when you're there, 92%. So you, you're kind of chronically hypoxic and you begin to feel that on you. What other kinds of things did you see? I would expect some frostbite. So we did have um, frostbite on station. Um, most of the time, it's not what you envision in terms of when you would see people, you know, on these climbing expeditions where they're in the cold all the time and it can never get warm. Uh, most of the time, it was because people weren't paying attention to what you're supposed to do. You know, as we got towards New Year's, it got warmer. And we would get to minus 20, minus 10, even got to zero one day. It got pretty warm. And when that happens, people go outside. They're not wearing as much because the weather's a little nicer. And they, uh, but they ride a snowmobile or the wind kicks up. And they suddenly realize that uh, they thought they got sunburned. So they would come and they go, hey, I got sunburned on the tip of my nose or my ears. And the blisters are actually the frostbite. So we try to explain to them this is actually frostbite. And we would um, go through treatment and both and how they and then how they can go back to work at all and things like that. Most frostbite um, heals very well because we keep them back in the warm, but we just obviously they can't get it refrozen again. So they have to be extra cautious about having that happen. Or if they have a job where there's that risk that they can refreeze, we don't allow them to go back to that job. So you are really on your own down there. And as you mentioned, you can't always get patients out quickly or easily. Did you see anything scary? 
I was very fortunate. I didn't have any of the big cases. Um, you know, they had some years where people came in who were quite ill. Um, we had a lot of VIPs. Everyone wants to get to the South Pole somehow, and they make an excuse to get on an Air Force aircraft. They're famous or they're big enough in the government that they can do it. And they show up to South Pole, and they don't realize how hard it is when they get off, given the altitude and the cold. And they get off to run and take their picture at the South Pole, thinking it's going to be easy. So I had a few of those people come, and they were sick, but we were able to get them right back on their aircraft before it left um, to get them out within an hour. Um, I, but I was fortunate not to have any big events other than those HAPE events that we had in the mountain sickness side of medevac. But um, we were prepared for most, uh, most things that way. What kind of resources do you have down there? So it's a fairly comprehensive clinic. Um, you know, I had a full treatment room with resuscitation room. I had uh, five ventilators total that I could use. I had an x-ray machine. I had to learn how to shoot my own x-rays. I had to warm it up and learn how to shoot x-rays, develop my films, and upload them to University of Texas. I had an ultrasound machine. It was very nice. I could shoot ultrasounds, which we did a lot of ultrasounds for everything because it's easy to use, and I could upload those. I had to do my own EKGs, put my own IVs in, draw my own bloods. Uh, I had to run my own labs. We had iStat and Piccolo machines, so I'd have to do all those. We had a pharmacy. I would have to dispense my own uh, medications out of there. We had a two-bed inpatient unit, so if we had someone who was sick like we did a couple times, so we had to fly out, but the planes aren't coming for a couple days. We, I had to stay as the nurse and stay in the unit with them. Um, and so we pretty much had to do everything on station ourselves uh, that way. But it's a fairly well-stocked station with, you know, for most everything. The, the challenge was if someone had something that exceeded us, then they had to be flown out. And it was just myself and a nurse practitioner. So we couldn't have all, and having just one sick patient would have been quite overwhelming for us. Yeah. Do you have everything you need for a critically ill patient? We have everything. So I had more propofol and ketamine than we probably do in our own emergency department. I could probably put the whole station in a coma for a week. And yeah, I had every presser. I had most every agent. I had TXA. I had TNK. Um, I had most everything that we would need. So it was uh, it was well stocked for that. And we had a medevac team that was at McMurdo. So they had, no planes stayed at Pole because they couldn't stay. They would the avionics and the navigation would shut down if they turned the planes off. But we had a the Air Force had a medevac nurse, and there, there's we had a civilian medevac nurse. So when I had medevacs, they would fly up and take over the patient that way. But they would always run out and take a picture at the pole first before they came to medical because everyone wanted to get their picture at the South Pole marker. So even the medevac teams, when they got off the aircraft, wouldn't come to medical right away. They ran to the pole, and they stamped their passport, and then they came to get the patient. Yeah, I guess I could see that. It's a pretty once-in-a-lifetime experience to get down there. So tell us more about the South Pole. The South Pole, um, you know, as I said, is, is a, it's on 10,000 feet of ice, um, and it's, there's never been carbon there. It's for a thousand miles. Uh, South pole looks more like Europa or Mars than it does earth. It's, you know, 4% humidity. Uh, and as I described, very, very cold. So, um, and the station there is, uh, this is the new station and built in 2008. It's very, um, you know, relatively sophisticated, but it is considered a space station by NASA because we share our satellites with the international space station though the International Space Station gets all the bandwidth. So we only got about four hours of usable internet a day that w that moved around. Um, but it, it is like being in space. You were isolated that way. We didn't have fruits or vegetables for almost three months um, because they just can't. It's not a priority on the flights that come in because they're bringing car cargo and things like that. So Because the flights can only come in during the summer from October till 
I left on February 15th, which was the last w- flight out. And now the team that's there, the last, the 42 people that are there now, they won't have a flight for 10 months and they're completely in the dark. I was completely in the summer in the sun. Um, it never got dark for me. And now they're the group that's there now is completely in the dark. So would you do it again? Absolutely. I would recommend it for any of your listeners who like this kind of stuff. Um, one, they like to get, you know, emergency physicians down there. Many times the, because we all have groups that we belong to and we're busy, our groups won't let us go along, go away for a while. But I think for people who are coming out of residency and they really like this, I would highly recommend it. They use a lot of docs who are already in, entering retirement. Um, or there's a lot of physicians who just do this as a, they do this kind of contract work around the world. There's a whole group of people who do this. Um, but I would highly recommend it for any listeners who like this. I'd love to do it again. Um, I'm very grateful to my wife letting me go for four months and for my group here at UC Davis and my chairman for giving me my sabbatical and my group letting me go. Um, but um, I would, yeah, it was, it was a really extraordinary experience to see a part of our planet that uh, um, few people get to see. And it made me appreciate how rare our little terrestrial band that has the carbon cycle with trees and bugs and grass, how rare that is when you go down there and you see that, you know, this is how most of the solar system is. Wow. What an amazing experience. So a huge thanks to Dr. John Rose for sharing this with us. And if you want to see some cool photos from John's trip, check out our website, ucdavisem.com slash em dash pulse, or keep an eye out on social media at em pulse podcast. As always, I'd like to thank OM Audio Productions and the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for supporting this podcast. And if you'd like to support us, the best way is to subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. See you next time.